Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, the Christian in the church. Uh, This is our final topical message. I'm so excited about next week. Next week, we're going to be digging into Ecclesiastes. I'll be preaching my book sermon in Ecclesiastes. There are outlines on that back table. I always give you an outline of the book before I preach it. And so there uh, are outlines on that back table. You may take one. I... I, uh, I think when I printed them out, I kind of had the idea that it was going to be an evening series, even though it's not. So I only, I think I only printed out 10 of them. Uh, but I will have more next week, so if you'd like to grab one, by all means do so. And you can begin to prepare your heart for Ecclesiastes. What an exciting book, and a special book. A, a misunderstood book in many ways. Um, and we're going to dig into it, and I'm, I'm excited about it. I think it's going to encourage our church in, a, in, in some great ways. So that'll be next week uh, with my book sermon in Ecclesiastes. But this week, a final topical sermon, uh, not on the family this time, but taking what we have learned about the family, particularly as we talked about it last week, and using it to transition to one other topic that I believe will be very helpful or, or is needful for our church to remember. Last week we went to Isaiah 3 and we talked about how one of the, the natural evidences of God's judgment upon a society is when children are society's oppressors. And it gave many other um, natural judgments that come upon a society when they reject God. And we mentioned uh, that in our society we see this, that children have become the oppressors of society. We are in a society that is devoid of strong male leadership and it has bound itself instead to the priorities of its children. And we stated that, that it is important, it is healthy for us to reject this child first mentality where the child takes ultimate precedence in the family and in the decisions of the family. Now it's certainly the duty we know And the desire of every parent to bless our children, to provide for their well-being, to help and to train them in the way that they should go to become capable adults. But it is dangerous to revolve family life around our children's desires exclusively. And we link that to many of the societal concerns that we see today. And then finally we made this point, and and, and it, it was an important differentiating point in our perspective. And it's not necessarily that we need to look at at family above individual. Our philosophy does not need to be the family is more important than you necessarily as much as it is the individuals in the family are more important than you. So we serve one another. We serve the others, the other individuals in the family. The individual is not lost among the priorities of the family or among the priorities of the collective. This is not taught in regard to any of the institutions which God has ordained. But rather that we as a collective ought to be loving others more than ourselves, even at the expense of ourselves, so that as I'm loving you at my expense and you're loving me at your expense, the church becomes strong. The family becomes strong. And even society if society were to take upon itself such a mindset, would strengthen. Not because we have regarded the 
collective above the individual, but because we as individuals regard the other individuals in the collective above ourselves. Love other better than ourselves. And I, today, today what I'd like to do is carry this into the church. As the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church, I have been called to be the under-shepherd of this flock. I am a spiritual sheepdog. Christ is the shepherd, and I'm the sheepdog, called by God to listen to the shepherd's commands and to guide the flock in the way that it should go. The good shepherd is the one who makes the rules. The good shepherd is the one who tells me what to do, and I, as a good sheepdog, do what the shepherd tells me to do. Like a father and his family, it is my responsibility to help guide this church family by helping the individuals within it to grow and calling you to serve one another. And today I'm going to draw some parallels between what we talked about last week in the family and the church, somewhat heightening the implications of everything that we said last week in order to call our church to be this, to be a family. Our church is many wonderful things. Never have I been associated with a body of believers that exhibits such genuine love as this one. We are a generous, a generous body, a gracious body, a thoughtful body in many ways. We are a diverse body of men and women from across several spectrums. We are passionate about the truths of God's word, about reading it, about believing it. And I believe this next year we're ready to take further positive steps as a church. We're ready to take this mindset of generosity and graciousness and love and translate it into something more. Serving and loving one another, not for the sake of serving the organization, the church, Legacy Baptist Church as a collective, but rather for the sake of serving each other's needs. Seeing ourselves not as a group of autonomous people that have just been called to interact with one another, but rather to become individual members of one singular body, serving our role in that body for the sake of the others who are a part of that body. And that's what we'll consider in our time today through Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12, if you're there, we read this in verses 1 and 2. Paul writing, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Our text begins with an extremely familiar set of verses, uh, coming off of what we might call a divine parenthesis in the book of Romans, where in chapters 9 through 11, Paul speaks to the relationship between God and the church and God and national Israel, the church and national Israel, recognizing all of these various relationships. And then he picks back up in an argument as he says, I beseech ye therefore, brethren. And while this argument is certainly uh, in line in many ways with what Paul says in Romans 9 through 11, it is much closer related to what Paul had been saying in Romans chapters 1 through 8. And that's why I call Romans 9 through 11 what we might, what we might consider a divine parenthesis. Paul is, he's an, he, he 
is a very intelligent man, and he sets forth a beautiful argument. And then in chapters 9 through 11, he kind of says, while I'm giving this argument, let me tell you about this other aspect. What about Israel? National Israel. Where do they come into play here? What's God doing through them in the future? What's he doing through them now? How does the church relate to that? How, How does Israel relate to the church? How does God relate to each of these groups? But then he picks back up in, in chapter 12. And, and if, uh, if this is a little bit confusing, let me clarify it with a, a brief outline, just a kind of a simple outline of the book, as we might understand it. Uh, this is a simplified outline, to be sure. But in Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul begins by talking about the gospel, what the gospel is. And then after he, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. He then talks about the guilt that comes through unbelief. And in, in chapters 1, uh, verse 18 through the, uh, nearly the end of chapter 3, through chapter 3, verse 20, he talks about guilt through unbelief and that the world is, rests in guilt through unbelief. They are guilty before God that there's no man that is without excuse. And then in, in chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, he talks about justification by faith and how it is that we are not justified by what we've done. We are not justified uh, by... Uh, and we can't earn our salvation. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In Romans 6 through 8, then he talks about the freedom that we have from the power of sin. Once you have been justified, once you have accepted that gift, being justified freely by his grace, then he says in Romans chapter 6 verse 1, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And he talks about how we are freed from the power of sin as we walk justified by faith. And and that the Spirit gives us freedom from sin. Well, and that brings us to chapters 9 through 11. And that's where we we see God's sovereignty over salvation. And he kind of hits this parenthetical idea of how is God sovereign over salvation? How is it? How do we reconcile uh, what God promised to national Israel with what we're experiencing now in the church? And he talks about these things. Now, it does almost seem out of place for Paul to put this here. But it's actually not. And the reason why it's not is because Paul... The way Paul writes, you you can see a trend throughout his writing. In Romans, you can see it very clearly in Ephesians, you can see it very clearly in Colossians. What Paul does is he begins by giving you spiritual and theological truths. He lays a spiritual and a theological foundation. And then once he has laid the foundation, once he has taught you the 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 concepts, the theological concepts, he then transitions to application. In Ephesians, we see it between Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 6. In Colossians, we see it between Colossians chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. You can see a a definitive transition from, from doctrine to practical theology, to application. And this is actually why I preach the way I do. If you've ever looked at the, the top of each of these slides, it begins by saying, understand. And then at some point, it transitions to apply, right? And so what we do first is we understand what the Bible is saying, and then we naturally transition into what that means for us. And I think that that's important that we get both of those. There's many a good Bible expositor who is is very active about telling you what the Bible has to say, but he never actually takes what that what, what the Bible has to say and helps you apply it to your life and gives you any practical application. 
And then there are many other uh, good pastors who uh, preach pretty much just application and they never really tell you where in the Bible to find it or why we believe that from the Bible. And while both of those men can be very effective, I think that we do a disservice to ourselves if we're not first understanding where to find something in the Bible and what the Bible has to say. And then we're also taking that to the next step of naturally applying it to our lives in a meaningful way. That's what Paul does. The majority of Paul's epistles are broken up. And once we understand our salvation, we have received it, we understand the power and the obligation we have to live free from sin, it is then our privilege to take that information and to practically apply it to the way we live our lives. So that's why Romans 9 through 11 is where it is, because it's still spiritual and theological, it's still doctrinal in in concept. So Paul is going to put it with that doctrinal area. And then he's going to transition to the practical. And that's what we see in Romans 12. Romans 12 through 15, sanctification by obedience. Practical Christian living. What does it mean to you that you've been justified by faith and that you have been freed from the power of sin? Paul's going to tell you what it means to you beginning in Romans 12. And obviously, um, there's a great deal in Romans 12 through 15, and I'm not going to preach it all today. In general, he'll speak on Obedience to authority, loving one another, caring for the weak in faith. These are obligations of those who understand their freedom in Christ. But as Paul begins, he begins this call unto practical Christian living. And the first thing he says is that you need to present yourselves, your whole selves. You need to put it all on the altar. That would be a picture from the Old Testament, right? That they would have an altar and they would take the animal and they would kill the animal and they would put that animal on the altar. And the burnt offering, which was one of the primary offerings in the Old Testament, was a complete offering. You burned the whole thing. That's the idea here. You're putting yourself on the altar completely. You're not, get, you're not holding anything back. He exhorts us to refuse to be conformed to the world. He says, and be not conformed to this world. Don't take on the fashion of this world. What is this world? Well, John tells us in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Those things that come out of those characteristics, that is the world. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to its ideals. Don't be conformed to its aspirations. Don't be conformed to its mindset. Don't be conformed to its direction. But rather, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word there, meaning to renovate. Renewing. The renovation or a change for the better. If you've ever renovated your home, you've never seen someone renovate the home into a worse state than it was in, right? The, the, uh, the purpose now might be uglier than it was before, depending on uh, preference. But, but what a renovation is supposed to do is take something and improve it, to make it better. So we are not to be conformed to this world, but rather to be transformed by the renovating of our minds, by the changing for the better of our minds. To be transformed in order that we might prove Test for the purposes of validating that we might prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect, that meaning most morally excellent or to the fullest extent, the most morally excellent or fullest extent of God's will. 
That's what we're called to do. This is the practical application of the fact that you are a believer, of the fact that you've been freed from sin, of the fact that there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, of the fact that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Paul said at the end of Romans 8, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. I missed something there. Things present, things to come. Uh, Any of those things shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If you cannot be separated from the love of God, if you cannot be separated from him, if we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, if God be for us, who can be against us? If all of that is true, if there's no condemnation, if you're freed from their sin, if you're not under its power, then present your body a living sacrifice unto him. Holy, acceptable, which is your, your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove Test that you may show to others what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And immediately, as you think of Paul and his exhortations, if you were going to think, okay, what would it mean? What does it mean to put myself on the altar completely? What Rhetorically, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? When you think yielding yourself wholly and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, not being conformed, but being transformed, what's the first thing that you think Paul would actually target well what he targets is loving and serving the body of Christ he says in verse 3 for I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith we're called by grace not to think ourselves above Others, Not to, be, to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but rather, he says, to think soberly. That means to have a sound mind, to think clearly. And what does it mean to think clearly? Well, we'll define that as we continue. Where, how is it that we can think clearly? And then he says, think according to the degree to which every man has been given faith. He goes on to say in verses 4 and 5, For as we have many members in one body... And all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members of another. Paul's talking about the church here. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Think soberly, as every man has distributed to you, uh, as, as God has distributed to every man faith. Why? Because we're many members. But we are only one body. A distinct parallel here that Paul draws between a physical body and the body of Christ known as the church. And I'd like you to be thinking on that plane with me this morning. As we're talking about this, think about the church as a body. As a body. We were talking just before uh, the Sunday school this morning about various parts of the body and how sometimes we need to support them. Sometimes we need to brace them. Sometimes we need um, to, to baby a certain part of our body because it's injured. Because when one part of our body is hurt, it affects the operation of our entire body. Because each member of our body is indeed important. That's what Paul is saying here, that you are a member of a body. Many members one body, but not all the same office. We don't all have the same function. The same way the body is a compilation of many individual members working together for another part, or for, for another as a part of a greater whole, so too as believers we are individual members compiled together to be a part of a greater whole, the body of Christ. 
And as we continue to walk through this text, it is within this context that Paul is comparing the church to a body and the individuals in the church to body parts. He goes on to say in verses 6 through 8, Having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Now within this body analogy, Paul teaches us that we have different gifts and that those gifts are for the body. He speaks of prophecy. Prophecy can mean foretelling, telling the future, but most regularly in scriptures, prophecy is actually not telling the future. When the Bible speaks of prophecy, the most regular occurrence of that idea of prophesying is just foretelling, of telling the word of God, the revealed word of God, telling God's people what God has to say. He speaks of ministry. This is that word diakonia, from which we get our word deacon. It literally means to serve tables. And it's simply a a element of ministering to the body. Has God called you to, to declare the word of God? Has he gifted you to do that? Has he gifted you to serve, to minister to others, to be one of the servants? He speaks of teaching the systematic organization of truth into a way that's clear and understandable. He speaks of exhortation, those in the body who are gifted with the ability to encourage others unto righteousness. Or maybe just encourage others unto encouragement. He speaks of giving. Those in the body who have been gifted with the ability and the conviction that they should have their hands open to the needs of others. He speaks of rulership. Those in the body gifted with the ability to organize and lead others in any number of directions. And he speaks of mercy. Those in the body with that sensitive spirit, eager to reach out, to listen, to understand, to sympathize, to care, uh, to evangelize. Now, it's not our fullest intent to dig deeply into the various gifts given to believers. I have preached on spiritual gifts. It was several years ago now in my first Corinthians series. We studied it in first Corinthians 12. Uh, I'll be going there in just a moment, but again, we're not, we're not explicitly teaching on the gifts today. In that message, we considered the deeper, uh, nature of the gifts themselves, both those presented here in Romans 12 as well as those presented in first Corinthians 12. That's not our purpose today. But notice carefully that Paul calls these gifts from God. Notice carefully as well that Paul states these gifts are exercised more or less in a believer according to the degree to which that believer has faith. Verse 3. And notice finally that none of these gifts are of any use if you aren't attached to and using them for others in the body. Now we'll come back to Romans 12 in a moment. I'd like us to go to 1 Corinthians 12. You can turn there. As you're turning, it's important important to speak of the distinct difference in purpose between these two passages. In Romans 12, Paul's intent is to teach about the nature of presenting your body as a living sacrifice, right? That's That's his thesis. Present your body a living sacrifice. Within this context, he says the primary way to do that is to identify the gifts that God has given to you and to use them for the body of Christ. So Paul teaches about the gifts as an extension of him teaching about your role in the body. 
In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is specifically teaching about spiritual gifts. And as he does so, he uses the opportunity to remind the readers about why God gave them this gifts. So they're both going to say pretty much the same thing. God has given you gifts, these are the gifts, and they're meant to be used in the body. But in Romans, the emphasis is upon using them in the body. In Corinthians, the emphasis is upon the gifts themselves. And we read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. Paul says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man, notice this, to profit with all. It's given to every man to profit everybody. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the self-same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Now again, I'm not digging into the gifts themselves. I have before spoken why we believe uh, several of these gifts, what we call the sign gifts, are not in regular operation within the church today. I preached that in 1 Corinthians 12. You can certainly go back uh, and listen to that, and I would encourage you to do so. As a matter of fact, there's one sermon, if you go to our archives page on our website, that says, Our Statement on Sign Gifts. And that's, I think, what it's titled, Our Statement on Sign Gifts. And you can uh, listen to that if you're interested in Our Statement on Sign Gifts. Specifically, however, consider how closely structured Paul's teaching here in 1 Corinthians 12 mirrors that of Romans 12. He teaches that spiritual gifts are given by the same Spirit. And in verse 7, he specifically mentions that they are given of the Spirit to profit with all. Given to every man individually in order to profit the church. Let's continue in verses 12 through 14. He says in 1 Corinthians, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. So the same analogy, the body analogy that we find here in Romans 12. The church is compared to a body. The body has many members, though it functions as one. So too the church is many members, though it has one spirit, exists for a unified purpose and with one unified mission. The church is not divided by nationality. It's not divided by economics. It's not divided by gender. It's not divided by any natural uh, nor synthetic classification. We have all been made to drink into one spirit. We've all been baptized by the spirit into one body. And there's not just one member of any body. There's many. The church isn't one man. And indeed, the church cannot be one man. Just as the church isn't a building. We say that, right? The church isn't the building. It's the people. So too, the church is not a man. It's many. Paul continues. He says, and we'll read the rest of the chapter, verses 15 to 31. 
If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism, division in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another, and whether one member suffer, all members suffer with it. And, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversity of tongues, all, are all, um, apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, Are all workers of miracles, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but covet earnestly the best gifts, Paul says, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. This excellent way that Paul says, he says, though I speak with the tongues of angels and have all wisdom and all knowledge, he says, and have not charity, I'm become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. He says the better way, the more excellent way, the thing which you should pursue with all your heart is to love one another. That's what he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13. But I read this substantial passage this morning so that we could allow this analogy to have its fullest effect. The body is not one member but many. As such, no part of the body can deem another part of the body superfluous, unnecessary. The foot cannot reason that because he is not the hand, he does not belong in the body. In fact, the foot is pretty essential to the body, isn't it? The ear cannot reason that because it isn't the eye, it has no part in the body. In fact, ears are pretty important to the body. Indeed, if the whole body were eyes, the body couldn't hear. If the whole body were ears, the body couldn't smell. The mark of a healthy body, both physically and spiritually, is a body that is made up of broad and diverse range of gifts, of abilities working together in concert to allow the body to function appropriately to its best ability. If the body is made up of all one type of member, it will not function properly. The body of Christ needs a broad diversity of spiritual gifts working together if it is to function properly. And by the way, Paul says, not everyone can be an honorable part of the body. Not every part of the body will get all the credit or will be seen as honorable, will be seen as, as, as special or, or more important. In the human body, certain parts get more attention than others, don't they? But all work together. And when something, even something small, isn't functioning well, the whole body often feels it, doesn't it? 
We could all think of valid examples of this. I remember a couple of years ago, I had had a bad cold. And after that cold, I'd had some water that was in my ear and it was causing me some vertigo. Now, I've never, I've read on a cereal box, heart healthy. I've never read on a cereal box, ear healthy. The ear doesn't get a whole lot of attention, but I tell you, when I had that, that vertigo, it was causing my whole body to struggle. It was causing my whole body to be disoriented, my balance to be off. That small little inner ear is pretty important, isn't it? Even those parts that don't get a lot of attention are necessary in the body. So it is with the church. Every member has been gifted, has something to offer. And if you're not offering it, the church is suffering. The church is not what it could be. Every function is needful. And when something isn't there or something isn't working right, whether that's absent or broken, it's noticeable and the whole body will suffer. Back in Romans, we'll pick up in verse 9. The Bible says this in Romans 12 as we continue. Paul says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another." Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Don't think of yourself too highly. That's where we started, right? That's where we started in verse 3, and Paul brings it around the horn. Serve one another. You're a member of a body. Serve the body. Recognize your gift. Apply that gift to the body. Abhor evil. Cleave to that which is good. Love one another. Distribute to the necessity of the saints. Be hospitable, be affectionate one toward another, honor uh, others above all else, be diligent in your service unto the Lord, bless your enemies, rejoice when the body rejoices, weep when the body weeps, because we have singleness of mind, we're serving the Lord, and when one part of the body is down, the whole body suffers. When, when the body is strong, when the individual members of the body are strong, the body rejoices. And yet in all these things, humility must clothe us. These tremendous virtues and actions are filtered, however, through Paul's teaching that as we yield ourselves as sacrifices unto the Lord, we do so by yielding our gifts to one another as members of the body of Christ. That's what the Bible has to say. Let's transition it into application today. Point number one. God has designed you for a body. God has designed you for a body. And as I apply this, let me say, God wants you in a local church. Now, this argument is often made, Pastor, we're all one body, the Bible says. That means that there is only one church, and we join that church the moment we're saved. How can you say that God wants me in a local church? I'm a part of the, I'm a part of the universal church. I'm a part of the broad church. Isn't that enough? Well, it isn't. And let me give you reasons as to why that's the case. Number one, a body that's divided cannot function. How can a hand in Minnesota and a foot in Florida 
possibly work in concert to fulfill the duties of Christ's body. It's easier to imagine that now because of communication and transportation the way it is than, say, 50 years ago. But it still doesn't work, does it? If a body needs two feet, two hands, a mouth, two eyes, two ears, and a nose to function at peak efficiency, then those parts had better be able to function together to accomplish direct purposes. If Buffalo, Minnesota is going to be one to Christ... If this area is going to be discipled for the Lord, it will not be because Legacy Baptist Church has capable feet, but the ears and the mouth are in St. Paul and in Mankato. That's not how this body is going to be able to function properly. Scattered body parts do no good for any one area. And very rarely in history has the church truly been effective on that broad and unified scale. We win souls in the trenches, one at a time. We disciple believers in the trenches, one at a time. We need feet here. We need arms here. We need a mouth here. We need eyes here. Or else they're not really doing any good. The very first practical application Paul gave to us being a living sacrifice, holy unto the Lord, is that we need to be active members of a unified body. So first, the body cannot be divided. Secondly, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, as we read in 1 Corinthians 12, the Bible says that God has gifted the church with evangelists and pastor teachers. These men are given to the church to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry, to edify what Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 says, the body of Christ. So God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers... For the edification of the body of Christ. Now, we can have a very valid debate over the number of pastors in this country who are legitimately called by God and gifted by God to be a pastor teacher. I think we would likely conclude that the number of pastors we have in the country is far greater than the number of actual called men of God in this country. But anywhere we can find a legitimate, acknowledged, called man of God, who has been called by God and gifted for the ministry, you can know without a doubt that God has called him to minister to a body. If I'm a called minister of God and I have been called to minister in Buffalo, Minnesota, then it stands to reckon that God has a body here for me to edify. Ministers are raised up to edify a body which means people must gather if that minister is going to fulfill the purpose for which he has been called and equipped. And this means that God wants us to come together because he wouldn't ordain an office which serves no purpose. So God has designed you for a body. Now, for those who are sitting under the sound of my voice this morning, locally, you're here. You, you've come. This, this, this point is kind of, okay, pastor, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir, you're, you're preaching to the people that have come to be a part of the body that, you've been, that they've been designed for a body. But we do have an internet community. And believe it or not, that internet community is actually quite large. Uh, we have quite a bit of bandwidth that goes through our website every month. Quite a few sermons downloaded. And let me just come out. I, I've only done this, I think, maybe once in my entire ministry. But let me come outside of ourselves for a moment. And let me say something to those who listen online. 
Not too long ago, we began posting a disclaimer at the beginning and the end of our YouTube videos, and soon we'll be putting it on our podcast as well. And it says this. The following sermon was preached as a part of the regular services of Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. While we hope it to be a blessing to your spiritual growth, we are firm in our conviction that online content is not a valid substitution for active involvement in a local church body, nor is Pastor Wickler a valid substitute to a local minister of the gospel in your life and family. As such, this sermon is posted to be supplemental or to sustain those who are temporarily without a church home. May God's word dwell in your hearts richly, the Legacy Baptist Church family. Maybe I should put Legacy Baptist Church body. That might, that might be more appropriate, wouldn't it? But as, as I speak to this internet community, we post this because this is what the Bible teaches. God wants you to be a part of a local church. Say, Pastor, you don't understand. There's nothing in my area. Well, may I make a couple suggestions? Maybe God wants you to be a part of a church plant. Or, maybe it's time to move to find a church. But what about my job? Well, God can handle that. What about my family? Well, God can handle that too. If God has saved you and designed you to be a part of a body, then you need to be a part of a body. If the very first order of business, which Paul speaks after calling us to be living sacrifices, is service in a body, then God wants you in a body. If you can't physically sit in these seats on a Sunday, physically sit down and talk with me about your spiritual strengths and weaknesses, weaknesses, physically be held accountable by the church body for your spiritual walk, then we are not your body and you need to find a body because God has designed you for a body. Back, back, back to us. First, God has designed you for a body. Secondly, God has gifted you for a body and you need to know this. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have been baptized by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ, if you have the Spirit of God indwelling, then God has gifted you for the body unto which He has called you. You have a part to play. And when you aren't playing that part, the body is suffering. There's something missing. It might be ministry, serving others. It might be teaching. It might, <coughs> excuse me, it might be giving. It might be leadership. But if you are gifted and you aren't in a body or you aren't exercising your God-given gifts for the body, then two things. Number one, the body is incomplete without you. But secondly, you are also incomplete without the body. The body needs you and you need the body. You might be an eye. You might be an ear. You might be a mouth. You might be a kneecap. You might be a toe. I don't know. But you are not enough on your own to fulfill the purpose for which Christ has redeemed you. You're designed as a part of a body. All throughout the New Testament, we read that we are not our own. That we are Christ's. This afternoon, we'll have a baptism and we'll hear those words. Buried with him by baptism unto death and raised to walk in newness of life. Dead with Christ, raised to walk with him, bought with a price. And when the price was paid and it was applied to our account at the moment of salvation, at that moment, God's plan for you has just begun. We have work to do. 
We need to win this world for Christ. We need to edify and encourage one another. And we've been gifted to work as one part of a whole body, working together to walk, talk, and serve in the name of Christ for His glory and for His kingdom. And if your gifts are sitting around unused, not only is the church suffering, but as with any body part that goes unused, that body part will suffer as well, right? Body parts that go unused weaken, suffer, just as much as the body that's not able to use that part. Consequently, if you're not sure what your spiritual gift is, there are ways of identifying them through time and care and prayer. Again, I'd encourage you to listen to my sermon on 1 Corinthians 12 where I talked about that on the LegacyBaptistChurch.net archives page. But we as a body can prayerfully help you discern what your, what your gift is, what, what purpose you have in the body and how you can serve. One more point today as we close. First, God has designed you for a body. Second, God has gifted you for a body. Third, and this is important, church isn't about you. This is where we link what we talked about last week to this week. Why did, why, why did this family series lead to this sermon? Well, the family series led to this sermon because last week we talked about the fact that children, the family does not revolve around you. And it's healthy for children to understand that the family doesn't revolve around them, that they are a part of something bigger, that they are to be serving, that they are to be a part of their family, that there is responsibility, not just privilege, that it's not about setting myself aside explicitly for the benefit of the collective, but rather setting myself aside for the benefit of the others that are in my family. This is how a family is supposed to work. You're supposed to serve one another. You're supposed to learn how to serve one another. You're supposed to learn how to defer. Our children aren't learning that today because families have lost this. Many have become child-centric. Not just family, but society has become child-centric. Children lack responsibility. They lack accountability. Families bend to the will of the child, even if the family suffers. Uh, society has bent itself to the will of children, even if society suffers. And, and this has touched society in a very real way today with entitlement culture. The nanny state. The nanny state is an outworking of a group of people that feel as though they ought to be taken care of for the rest of their life simply because they exist and that others bear the responsibility of doing that. Our children don't grow up and so they think that everything exists to serve them, that the government exists to serve me, that society exists to serve me. And can you see how this has touched the church today? I don't know if you've done a lot of church visiting. Uh, uh, and the unfortunate term is church shopping. I don't know if you've done a lot of that. But have you ever noticed how many people see church as something for them? That it's all about them? They come, they sit, they listen, they leave. They don't contribute. Loyalty to the church extends only as far as I perceive the church is benefiting me. Isn't that kind of the same attitude? As the child who thinks the family exists to serve them? As the citizen who thinks the, the society exists for no other reason than to serve them? Isn't that kind of the same thing in the church where a person comes and thinks that the church exists simply to serve them? If society is not about you, and family is not about you, but rather it's about you serving others, 
Let each esteem other better than himself. Well, then what makes us think that church is about us? So you don't have the best preacher around. But is he sound in doctrine? Is him not being the best preacher around a good reason to reject the body? So your church doesn't have all the opportunities, programs. It's not serving your need. Is is that a good reason to reject the body? Maybe the reason the church isn't more is because its members aren't serving their part. Maybe the reason the pastor isn't the best preacher is because he wears so many hats. Maybe the reason the preacher isn't a better pastor is because he's trying to be an ear, a mouth, a nose, and an elbow at the same time. Maybe the reason the church doesn't have more opportunities for ministry is because those who have been gifted in said ministries, those who have the gift of mercy and would be naturally predisposed to have uh, ministries for uh, benevolence, and those who are naturally predisposed to have a ministry toward evangelism aren't stepping in to do what God has gifted them to do. But starting a ministry takes too much time, too much effort, too much investment. It might mean a priority shift. You might lose your free time. It might cost you some money. It might make you vulnerable, spiritually, emotionally, otherwise. And so, as a member, gifted for the Lord, the one who might be able to actually play that part, to be that part, to make the church a a better functioning whole, instead you say, well... That's a lot of work. And that doesn't really serve me. So maybe I'll just leave it to someone else. But you're a part of something bigger than you. You're a part of a living organism with people who are seeking, people who are hurting, people who are learning, people who are growing, people with scars, people with wounds, People who are tired. People who are excited. People who are moving forward. People who are lagging behind. Some are making decisions right now in their lives about whether or not God is worth serving. And God wants you to be a part of that. And we need to be a part of that.